Okay, so Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Okay, look at verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. And he goes on to say the same thing for the quote unquote foreigner. And so we wonder what's going on here. Well, what's that? So a couple things we need to be just remind ourselves here. First of all, you notice the emphasis on Sabbath keeping and profaning the Sabbath. Remember that according to um, Exodus 31, where um, a lot of the Sabbath laws are introduced and explained, that the keeping of the Sabbath was really a um, a shortcut language, a shortcut of, of sorts to talk about the keeping of the Mosaic covenant, uh, the, the covenant given to Moses and the people of Israel way back in the book of Exodus. So when you read here in Isaiah profaning the Sabbath, we, we read that as a reminder that they're keeping the provisions of the covenant. That's that's what that means. But notice, uh, well, I already mentioned it, it's the Mosaic Covenant. I guess I can't ask you the question if I've already given you the answer, right? It's the Mosaic Covenant by context, Exodus chapter 31. That's what we're talking about. Now, here's where it gets interesting. According to Mosaic law, foreigners and eunuchs were excluded from participating in the covenant. And if we go back, for example, to Exodus chapter 12, verse 43, you, you don't need to turn there, but you can... Uh, you can't, you certainly can if you want to, or you can just listen and I will, I will read this. It's really kind of interesting. Um, one of the provisions of the law, uh, we, we read this in uh, chapter 12, verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat eat of it. So uh, that's just one of many examples in the Old Testament that reminded the people that if you were not an Israelite, you could not participate in the full blessings of the worship services of the holidays like the Passover mentioned here and the provisions of the covenant. And uh, and God had a reason for that. Uh, part of that reason, you'll remember, in calling the Israelites was was to show his exclusive um, calling of the Israelites as his people, as they would be his megaphone to the nation. So there's, there's this clear distinction between Israel and everybody else. But that doesn't mean that God didn't care about those other people or there weren't other provisions for them. And that's what Isaiah is circling back to address. He's saying, let not the foreigner and the eunuch think, well, I'm going to be excluded from God, right? I'm not going to be I'm not going to be able to benefit from the uh, the provisions of the covenant. But looking back at Isaiah uh, 56 in verse 4, God says that the eunuchs and the foreigners who hold fast his covenant, that choose to do what's pleasing to him, that they will be given, it says there in verse 5, an everlasting name which will not be cut off. So this is what Isaiah is saying. Their obedience indicates true faith, and it's true faith that brings access. Now, you you need to remember this from last time. Remember last time in chapter 55, there's this picture of a banquet, right? And, and, And people are coming. They don't have any money. They don't have any provision. And God says, come eat freely. Um, of my food, of, of my drink. And that's a picture of the free mercy of the new covenant or, or what we call the gospel in the Old Testament. And, and so it, it's, it's a same reminder that we see in, in chapter 56 now 
that this free offer of mercy that Isaiah has said elsewhere is not just for the people of Israel, but, but for anybody who would come and turn to the Lord in simple faith, that that provision is available for all. And so what Isaiah is doing in chapter 56 is simply stressing the fact that those that were considered outsiders in the Old Testament are actually those that now have access to God through faith and that that faith um, demonstrates itself in obedience to the provisions and the covenants that God made. You say, well, wh- why is that? Why is that so important? It's important to stress what Isaiah has said over and over and over again, and that is the mercy of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, access to God is not something that is exclusive to the Israelites. The Israelites had an had a important role in that in terms of God's program. But access is available to all through the new covenant and through the work of the servant. And um, in fact, look down at um, look down at verse uh, seven, talking about the foreigners that uh, same thing if the foreigners uh, uh, exemplify faith and all that, that they have access to verse seven of chapter 56. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Did you get that? God's temple, his house, is to be a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, let me ask you this. Where have you heard that verse before? And you'll have to, I guess those of you in the sanctuary can't really participate, so sorry. But those of you uh, Zooming from home, where have we heard that verse before? When Jesus was in the temple. That's right. The temple. That's right. Uh, this verse, Jesus quotes this verse when he clears out the temple. Do you remember that? Um, uh, Jesus actually clears the temple out twice in his ministry. In the Gospel of John, we see that he cleans the temple out at the beginning, at the start of his ministry. And then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see him do something very similar at the end of his ministry, shortly before um, his death and resurrection. And uh, so, so here's the thing. You're absolutely right. That's where we see the verse quoted. Now, I want you to remember this. My house will be called a house of prayer. Uh, hang on here. Jesus quotes this verse when he cleanses the temple. That's Matthew 21, 12. That's one of the, one of the places he does that at the, the second time at the end of his ministry. Now, he, now here's, here's my, my Bible trivia question. Where was Jesus when he quotes from Isaiah about, about his house being called a house of prayer for all peoples? Where is he located? Temple. Okay. He is in the temple. Where in the temple? The outer court? Yes, which was also called what? You remember what the outer court's called? No. Okay, I, I've, I've got to show you this because this, this is really cool here. Let me see if I can do this. Um, okay, so can you see my little laser on the screen there? I know it's probably tiny for a lot of you. Um, this is actually a picture that I took. Isn't that nice? Um, it needs it needs a little bit of cropping here. Um, our our tour group is down here somewhere, and uh, I was too busy trying to get good pictures of this thing, so I broke off from the tour. But uh, this is a model of the old city of Jerusalem, and uh, it's a huge model. I mean, it's it's incredible. You you can see the scale. I mean, here's actual real people there. Those are not those are not. Uh, uh, Cardboard cutouts like we're seeing in college football. Those are actual real people. Um, but uh, so here is, this is Herod's temple. This is the temple mount as it would have looked in Jesus' day. And so here's the temple proper. And then we see there's different courts represented here, right? The court of women, the court of um, the, the gate where only the priests could go through in 
side here. But it's this outer court that we're interested in, okay? And this outer court is where the money changers had set up their tables to, to sell items related to the sacrifices. So this is where Jesus would have been. I'll give you another picture here. So we, we've got uh, different areas here where uh, if you were a woman, you could only go in here. If you were a man, you could only go in here. And then the priests, of course, could only go in here. So there were there are different sections. Now, tell me, outside here, okay, this whole area on the outside, it is called the outer court, but it also has another name. What's it called? Do you remember? Some of you are looking in the backs of your Bibles right now or, or Googling Herod's temple, and that's okay. That's right, Sally. It's the court of the Gentiles. Now, think about this. Jesus is standing in the court of the Gentiles. He quotes from Isaiah, and Isaiah has just said in context, my house will be called a house of prayer for what? All peoples. For all peoples, for all nations. Do you see how that fits together? Jesus isn't picking some random verse and using it sporadically. Um, he's using it based on the actual intent of it in the book of Isaiah. And, and he really has two meanings, right? I mean, the first thing he's saying is um, my house is to be a place of worship and prayer, not a place of commerce. And, and that's that's his main you know, the thrust of, of why he goes there. But think of, think of the second part of that. He's standing in the court of the Gentiles saying, this is really for all peoples. And in just a short amount of time, Jesus will go to the cross and he will die. And what will happen as he says, it is finished. What will happen inside this little room here? The curtain rips. The curtain rips. And what does that do? It signifies access to all peoples, right? So Isaiah is reminding us that God is not offering salvation exclusive, exclusively just to the, to the Jews, to the Israelites, that there's provision made for all people. And Jesus, in quoting that section of Isaiah 56, is drawing the, the attention of the first century audience to that reality, which will happen as he goes to the cross shortly after that conversation he has in the temple. I just think that's neat that all that kind of comes together in that point. In fact, here's the conclusion. Back to Isaiah 56, the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, what does he say? Yet others will gather with them to those Already gathered. And again, that's a that's a specific reference to the fact that it's not just Israelites that are gathered in faith around the Lord. But God says, I will have I have others. I will gather others from other nations, other peoples. So what does that remind us? And this is the first reminder about true salvation. True salvation is a reminder. Uh, true salvation brings indiscriminate access, meaning all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a reminder that whatever somebody has done, whatever background that they have, uh, whatever sins that they have committed, that there is no person who is excluded from the provision and mercy of God and the gospel because all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Isaiah reminds us of that. Jesus reminds us of that uh, in Matthew. And that's a good reminder for us today. Um, the gospel is not a holy club, right? It's not, a, um, it, it's not some exclusive um, opportunity for elites, but it is an opportunity for all people. And, and that, you know, that, that should really inform how we think about evangelism uh, and how we think about uh, missionary work that that knowing that the gospel is a, is available uh, to anyone who would call in the name of the Lord that should focus our efforts to get the gospel out 
to as many people and as many different types of people as possible. And, uh, you know, there's a, uh, an intentional, um, an intentional effort to go to the, uh, to people that have not been reached or, uh, the least of these is sometimes the word we use, right? To go and, uh, just to remind one another that the gospel is available to all and we need to share it and minister it to all people in that way. Okay. So that's, that's kind of the first reminder of the gospel that it's available, uh, excuse me, reminder of true salvation is that it's available to all. It's indiscriminate access. Let's look at a second reminder now, uh, as this chapter goes on. And we're just going to call this a reminder that grace is stubborn. A reminder that grace is stubborn, stubborn grace. And, uh, look at this with me. Chapter 56, pick it up in verse 10. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. And you say, well, what is this even talking about? Um, there's a hard paragraph break at the end of verse 9. And uh, so chapter 10, or verse 10 of chapter 56 actually starts uh, a new paragraph, a new idea. Um, so so think, think about this with me, okay? His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber, and the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They are shepherds, or excuse me, uh, they all have turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain to the last one. Um, now, what's going on here? Isaiah is referencing here the leaders of Israel, and he calls them in verse 10 his watchmen, he calls them in verse 11, his shepherds. And you'll remember in, do you remember the, the video animation I showed you in the book of Isaiah, the, from, um, the, the Bible project? You'll remember a big emphasis of the book of Isaiah is the corruption of Israel's leaders. And so that's what Isaiah is talking about here is he's talking about the corruption of Israel's leaders. And he says they're, they're blind. They know nothing. Uh, they're like mute dogs. They're unable to bark, meaning that they're not warning people about threats. In verse 11, uh, there's shepherds who don't understand. They've turned aside to their own way. They're seeking unjust gain. Look at verse 12. They say, let us get wine. Let us drink heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, only more so. So, so they're drunk. They're corrupt. They're addicted. The leaders of Israel are corrupt. Look at the beginning of chapter 57 now. The righteous man perishes and no man takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away while no one understands. The righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. Um, so what are we saying here? Israel is tolerant of injustice. This is another thing. What Isaiah is doing here is he's rehearsing, he's reviewing the main themes of the book of Isaiah. And he's reminding us that the leaders are corrupt. He's reminding us that the people are, are tolerating injustices, right? A righteous man perishes and no one cares. Um, people are corrupt. They're, they're taken away from, from evil. They, they, um, they're not, they're not, um, uh, dealing with the injustices of the land in a righteous way. Look at this. The Israelites live in sin and rebellion. Verse 3, come here, you sons of sorcerers, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit? Verse 5, who slaughter the children in the ravines. Um and he goes on to just talk about the corruption and the sin and the rebellion of the people. So again, what's Israel, what's Isaiah doing? He's rehearsing. He's reminding us of the the main themes of the book. Right? Leaders are corrupt. Israel is tolerated injustice. They live in sin and rebellion. And notice in verse six, they also are committing acts of idolatry. Right? He says in verse six. Um, among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them you have poured out drink offerings. You have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? 
Upon a high and lofty mountain you have made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your sign. Um, so what's he saying? He's saying Israel has gone out to the mountains, to the hills. They've built altars, and those are what the prophets called the high places. Those are places where the Israelites would worship false gods of the surrounding nations. So that's what he's he's talking about there, and uh, and they're bragging about it in verses nine and ten. Uh, they brag about their. Um, their uh, their idolatry. Verse 11, of whom you were worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor give me a thought. Was I not silent even for a long time? So you do not fear me. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. So God says, I see your idolatry. I see your corruption. Um, and it, it grieves him. Even when God uh, brings discipline, they still have not fully repented of their idolatry. And then in verse 13, Isaiah, uh, God says through Isaiah, when, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them up and the breath will take them away. So what, what God is saying is on the day of trouble, they're going to they're gonna cry out to God to deliver them from from their enemies, and God, is, God says, you've been committing idolatry, you've been building altars, you've been going to the high places. Why don't you cry out to your idols to deliver you if that is where your allegiance really lies? But, of course, the idols will not be able to deliver them. So we see we see a, a, a corrupt nation, right? The leaders are corrupt. There's injustice. They live in sin and rebellion. They're committing idolatry. And yet, even while they're doing all of these things, when they get in trouble, what do they do? Uh, you, you remember you remember way back when, when 9-11 happened? Uh, some of you are too young to remember that. When, when 9-11 happened, you know, secular, worldly America all of a sudden thought it would be good to to pray, right? Remember that? Everybody was talking about praying and praying this and praying that and God bless America and all that. And, you know, that, that's what, that's what sinful people do is they live in rebellion. They live in sin. They live in secularism. They live in ungodliness. They live in idolatry. And then when they really get into trouble, what do they do? They cry out to God like a divine genie. Um, and then they go right back to living in corruption. And that's that's what's happening here in the nation. Uh, you know, they get in trouble, they cry out to God, and God says, "Well, if your allegiance is with your idols, why don't you let your idols deliver you?" Okay. Look back at verse thirteen. Look back the second half of thirteen. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land, and will possess my holy mountain. God says, yet in spite of all of that, the offer of grace still remains. And this is, this is what's so amazing about this book, guys. And this, this needs to just overwhelm you today like, like it has overwhelmed me in preparing for all of this. Look at this. Sin, corruption, rebellion, idolatry, hypocrisy. You know, they cry out to God when it's convenient, when they're in trouble, and then they go right back to living in their sin. And yet God says, in spite of all that, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your corruption, in spite of your sin, in spite of your idolatry, I still offer grace to any who will truly repent and put their trust in the Lord. That's verse 13. But he who take refuge in me will inherit the land. Verse 14. And will it, be, it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle. Now, this is amazing. Look at, look at verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and a holy place. We, we think of God high and lifted up. We think back to chapter 6, right, where Isaiah's famous vision of God high and lifted up and exalted and the train of, the, of his robe fills the temple and the smoke and the seraphs and and, and the, the speaking to one another and the earthquake and, the, and, and all this going on, right? That is who God is. He is high and holy, exalted, separate from sin, um, all-powerful, 
um, all-knowing, all-wise, and that's where he resides, right? He says here, I reside, I live um, in a high and holy place. Now, watch this. God also says in verse 15, but I also dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is a verse that you need to underline in your Bible. This is a verse you need to highlight in your Bible because it marks one of the most incredible attributes of God, and that is this. Though he is high and exalted and lifted up and holy and separate from sin, lofty, um, <clears throat> omnipotent and omniscient and, and righteous in all his ways, and yet even though all those things are true, what is God willing to do to stubborn, unjust, rebellious, idolatrous sinners who repent in contrition. What is he willing to do? He is willing to condescend. Do you see that? He is willing to stoop down from that high and exalted place in order to rescue those of us who are contrite and lowly and who have been humbled by our sin and, and, and are, are in the most pathetic of situations. God says, I am willing to stoop down and help you. God is high and exalted, and yet he also is willing to associate with the lowly. And that, friends, is an amazing, almost shocking reality of the character and person of God. In fact, look at what he says in verse 16. He says, I will not contend forever. I will not always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of those I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, right? What's he talking about? He's saying the Israelites over and over and over and over again have been stubborn and rebellious and and, and sinful. And God says, I've disciplined. I've been angry. Remember a couple of chapters ago, we saw that. God says, like a like a husband who sends his wife away temporarily and then restores her. That, that, that's what God has done in his discipline of his people. But God says, once again, in verse 18, he says, um, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord and I will heal him. What does that remind us of, guys? It reminds us that God's true salvation, the true offer of mercy, is a offer of we might what we might call stubborn grace. You say, what does that mean? It means that our corruption, our injustice, our rebellion, our idolatry, our repeating of sins over and over again, God's Grace is stubbornly offered to us over and over and over again. It was offered to the Israelites. God says, even though they continue to rebel, I still offer and extend my hand of mercy. And if they will take hold of it, I will heal them and I will restore them. You know what this reminds us, guys, is that, uh, again, it, it, it doesn't matter how far away from God we walk. It doesn't matter uh, what our sins are, how many times we've rebelled, have turned away. Uh, maybe as I'm reading this and, and talking, you're thinking of a loved one who has rejected the gospel. Uh, you're thinking about an adult child that remains uh, without Christ, or maybe a parent who has rejected Christ. Maybe you're thinking about a co-worker or a, a dear friend of your family that, that has rejected and rejected and rejected. And I just want you to hear that God's grace is stubborn. It is persistent. It is, um, uh, it is, it is enduring in terms of the offer of mercy. And God says here, if you will take hold of my offer of grace, I will heal you and restore you 
and bring you back into relationship with God. God's grace is stubborn and don't, don't ever, don't ever think that you or someone you love is beyond the grace of God to help them. Because God's grace, as the hymn says, is greater than all our sin. And, and I would, I would add a, another stanza to say that God's grace is more stubborn even than our stubborn sinful hearts. And if we will turn to him in repentant faith, that mercy and grace will be lavished upon us. But, but even though all that's true, those who remain in wickedness, verse 21 says, will indeed perish. Grace is stubborn. Mercy is greater than, than any of any sin, any rebellion. But it must be accessed. Mercy and grace must be turned to. We, we must call upon the name of the Lord in our day of trouble in order to receive that grace and mercy. And so we, we must turn and we must call men and women to turn. But let's remember that there is grace that is greater than all our sin, that grace will always triumph over rebellion when we humble ourselves and ask God for mercy. Okay, so we, we've seen that that, um, that there is a, a indiscriminate offer, right? Indiscriminate access that the true salvation, the true gospel brings access to anybody who would call upon the name of the Lord. We've seen that the nature of saving grace is stubborn. It's it's greater than all our sin. It, it, it overcomes any rebellion, any idolatry, any hypocrisy, anything that we've done. Grace remains greater and endures. It's a stubborn grace that God continues to offer his mercy uh, to those um, who, who would cry out to him. Let's look at a, a third uh, reminder of true salvation. And we see this in chapter 58. And I won't read the whole thing. Uh, but let, let's look at a third reminder. And we're going to call this missing the heart. Missing the heart. Let me let me just read a little bit of it of this to you, okay? Chapter fifty-eight, verse one. Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet, and declare to my people their transgression, and to the house of Jacob their sins. Okay, so we're gonna. He, he, uh, God is saying to the prophet, you know, announce to the people their transgression, show them their sin, show them that they need repentance. They need that stubborn grace that was just mentioned in chapter 57. Look at verse two. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways. Okay, so so God is saying through Isaiah, the people seek God day by day. They delight to know his ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. And so we, we read that and we go, wait a minute. Why would God be telling the prophet to go and announce to the nation their transgressions and sins when it sounds like Israel is doing all the right things, right? Isn't that what it says? They, they seek God day to day. They delight to know his ways. They're doing righteousness. They're not forsaking his ordinances. They ask God uh, when they have decisions to make. They delight in God's nearness. We say, well, what's going on, right? They, they seek God. They delight in his ways and, uh, and in his ordinances. And yet, look at the next verse. It says, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves, but you do not notice? Um, so the Israelites are confused because they're saying, God, we're, we're seeking you. We're delighting in your ways and your ordinances. And yet you're not acknowledging our obedience. You're not acknowledging our works. It seems like God doesn't take notice of them. And we say, why is that? Why would God not take notice of their righteousness? And this reminds us of a third theme. This is the third theme of the book of Isaiah, right? We, we've seen that access is available to everybody, right? We saw that. 
that grace and mercy are stubborn. God continues to open wide um, uh, his mercy to stubborn and rebellious people if they will repent. And this, this missing the heart, this third theme, this third reminder that we're looking at, takes us all the way back to Isaiah chapter 1. So hold your place there. Look back with me at chapter 1 of Isaiah. I know it's been a long time since we've been in Isaiah chapter 1, but just hold your place here in in chapter 58. Go all the way back to chapter 1, and I want you to remember with me some of the things that God said in this opening chapter. Okay? So Isaiah starts off in chapter 1 talking about how the, the people are weighed down, their sons who act corruptly, they've abandoned the Lord, they, they've been stricken, they've been rebellious, that their head is sick, their heart is faint, their land is desolate, their cities are burned, and we go, oh my, what, what on earth has happened, right? And in verse 11, God says this, this is chapter 1, verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I can't endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Strong language coming here, guys. Verse 14. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes. Even when you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are covered with blood. What is, what is God saying in chapter one here? And uh, he goes on to say, you know, wash yourself, cleanse yourself. Okay, go back to chapter 58. What has been one of the main messages to the Israelites in the book of Isaiah? Starting in chapter 1, he circles back to chapter 58. Here's the message. Israel is simply going through the motions of religion while their hearts remain corrupt and sinful. That's what's going on. Israel is missing the heart. They're doing new moon sacrifices and festivals and holidays. They're praying, right? They're, they're, they're asking God for decisions. Um, they're going through a lot of the right behavior, but in their heart, they remain corrupt and they remain stubborn and rebellious and sinful. They're missing the heart. And that is what Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 58. Okay, so go back there. Look at verse 3 again. Now we're back in Isaiah 58, chapter 58. Just head back there if you haven't done that. And look again at chapter 58, verse 3. Okay, he says, you know, the people are saying, we've fasted and God doesn't see. We've humbled ourselves and you don't notice. Now God's going to respond, okay? God responds in the second half of verse 3. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire, and you drive hard all your workers. Listen to this. Behold, you fast contention and strife, um, and you strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today and make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this, which I choose a day for a man to humble himself? It is for bowing one's head like a reed and spreading out sackcloth as ashes on a bed. So, so what's Isaiah saying? He's saying, sure you fast. And on the day that you fast, probably because everybody's grumpy because they haven't eaten anything all day, they, they get grumbly and they start abusing their servants, right? They, it says there, you drive hard all your workers. You, you strike them with a wicked fist. He, he's saying, you're missing the point. It's like they're saying, oh, hey, look, we're fasting. Why doesn't God notice? While they're abusing their workers and they're grumbling and they're angry and they're violent. He, he says in verse 5, the point of the fast is not just to go a day without food. No, no, no. The point of a fast, according to verse 5, is what? To bring humility, to bring contrition, to bring repentance. Um Verse 6, the point of the fast is to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to let oppressed go free, to break every yoke. 
It's to remind ourselves that true religion is about uh, sharing your bread with the hungry. Verse 7, bringing the homeless poor into your house, covering the naked um, in that way. That, that The point of these religious um, rituals like fasting is so that it would be a, a time to be humble, to be reflective, to bring repentance, to practice true acts of kindness and love to neighbor. The point is not just to avoid food. The point is to grow in godliness in your heart. And that's what Israel was missing. They were missing the point. They were missing the heart. Uh, look down at verse 8. He says, if you will let humility and contrition and repentance and righteousness endure in your heart so that the, the, the fast, in this case, the fast has the result of furthering your godliness in your heart. Verse 8 then says, then your light will break out like the dawn. See, the point here is they missed the point because they missed the heart. Okay, they missed the point because they missed the heart of what God is asking them to do. And I was talking to my kids about this last night, and I want to share this with you also. Um, this is a really important reminder to us that it is possible, right? Guys, it's possible for us today, just like it was possible for the Israelites back in Isaiah's day. It is possible for us, you ready? To read our Bibles, to pray, to go to church, to participate in worship, to serve in the church, to you know, do religious things. It is possible to do all of those things and to miss the point because our heart is not engaged. And I don't know about you, I need that reminder. I need that. It is so easy for us to go through the motions of Christianity and to miss the point because our heart is not engaged. And that is what Isaiah is reminding us of today. We must keep our heart engaged. We must remember the point, and that is to grow in humility, to grow in godliness, to be more like Christ as we would engage in these you know, facets of Christianity that all of us are involved in. But if, if we're just going through the motions, man, we, we've seen that. What did God say in Isaiah chapter 1? I read it a moment ago. If you or I as Christians today are just going through the motions of Christianity, our heart is not really in it, our, we're missing the point. What does God say? If we can extrapolate what he says in Isaiah chapter 1, he says, you know what? I hate what you're doing. I am not honored by what you're doing. I take no delight in your Christianity if your heart is not engaged and if sin remains that is not being dealt with. Um, so th those are sobering words, guys, that we need to take to heart today and just be reminded that God is not impressed with external religious service. What he's looking for is true worship and true service from the heart. OK, that, that's so important that we think about that. Now, Isaiah does say if we will engage the heart and keep the point right, what's going to happen? Notice they're going to have a strong testimony. Verse 8, then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery, your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. So we ask the question, do we want to have a strong testimony to a world that needs Jesus? And if our answer is yes, we want to have a strong testimony, we must keep our heart engaged in what we're doing, right? Look at a second thing that will happen if they get the heart right, right? If, if Israel will keep their heart, there will be protection, God says. Look down at verse, uh, where is it? In verse, um, well, it's the end of verse eight. Your righteousness will go forth before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. That's a way of saying God will provide protection to the Israelites as they pursue him with a true and humble heart. 
Notice thirdly, a third benefit. If they will keep their heart, if they will keep their heart engaged in what they're doing, there will be true fellowship, right? Remember, both in chapter 1 and earlier in this chapter, God says he doesn't notice, he doesn't hear. They cry out in prayer, God doesn't answer. That's because fellowship has been broken because of their hypocrisy and their sin. But God says, if you will repent and engage me in your heart and trust me and turn to me from the heart, then you will call It says, and the Lord will answer, verse 9, you will cry, and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness, and your gloom will become like midday. Again, if they are truly living out their faith from their heart, then God says your testimony is strong and I will have fellowship with you when you call out to me. Notice a fourth provision, guidance and strength. Verse 11, God says, if you will engage your heart and live out of your heart the way I'm asking you, verse 11, the Lord will continually guide you and he will satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength To your bones, you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Have you ever noticed this? And uh, um, if you're looking at the screen, you can look up at the screen here uh, for a moment. And I want to just just draw this point to you. Have you ever noticed that when we just go through the rituals of Christianity, when we just go through the habits of of our Christianity that we do not have the satisfaction in the Lord. We do not have that delight in the Lord that the scriptures promise for those who seek him. Have you noticed that? Maybe you've caught yourself like I have. It's like, I'm doing all the right things, but in my heart, I feel like I'm starving for fellowship with God. And that's because my heart isn't engaged. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying, if you will engage your heart, you will know what it says there, what true delight, true satisfaction. God will guide you. He'll give strength to your bones. You'll be like a watered garden, a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That's what we want, and that's what we desire. So if you feel like you're lacking guidance, you're lacking strength, you're lacking satisfaction in the Lord. Ask yourself the question, am I really pursuing God from my heart? Is my heart really engaged or am I just going through the motions of Christianity? There's a fifth provision here that we would see and that is restoration. Now this is really unique to the Israelites because he's talking about the rebuilding of their city. Look at this. Verse 12, those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations, and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which you dwell. God says, if you will turn your heart and engage your heart to me, I will bring restoration of Jerusalem, of the walls, of the city, of the temple, uh, and and ultimately uh, the restoration of their nation. And that that's what God is saying here. He will bring restoration there. And finally... We see a delight. Uh, if they get the heart right, there will be delight in God and ultimate success. I, I love this. Look at verse 13. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and you honor it, desi- uh, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own word, Then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Did you see what he just said? Don't get get caught up on on keeping the Sabbath. We understand that those Sabbath laws go away in the New Testament, and we're not called to keep the Sabbath today. But that's not the point. The the point is that the, the, the Sabbath laws here are simply representing the fact of choosing obedience to God against what you feel like doing or what you may want to do. That's what he's saying there. If you will choose obedience to the Lord, taking delight in him, instead of taking delight in your own pleasure, meaning 
you know, doing what, what you want to do or what you feel like doing, not what God has asked you to do, right? If you will deny yourself and turn to God in delighting in him and obedience, then you will know, God says, a true delight or satisfaction in him. And I love this. He will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. What does that mean? It means God's going to bring a satisfaction, a, a success of sorts in terms of knowing him and walking with him and knowing his ways and finding satisfaction in his ways. We say, man, do you see what we, what, when we just go through the motions of religion, look at what we miss. We, 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 uh, muddy our testimony. We, we give up protection and fellowship and guidance and strength and restoration, delight and success. And yet God says, if you will engage your heart, if you will seek me from your whole heart and engage, engage your, your heart in the things of the Lord, that, then look at the benefits. Look at the provisions that God promises. What, what God is looking for, what God wants from us is our hearts. He wants us to trust him and pursue him and delight in him and engage in all the aspects of Christianity from the heart. And when we do that, there are an abundance of provisions and blessings, some of which Isaiah just told us about at the end of the chapter there. Okay, so so three reminders about true salvation. These are the big ideas of Isaiah, right? That the gospel is accessible to everyone. It's indiscriminate access. That grace and mercy are stubborn. There's grace that is greater than, than any sin, and all who call upon the name of the Lord, regardless of the extent of their sin and rebellion, can find mercy. And then thirdly, we just need to remember that true salvation is about keeping our heart engaged. It's about a true trust and faith from the heart in the Lord. That God is not impressed with external religiosity. What he's looking for is a heart that truly trusts him and loves him. And I think all three of those are needed and helpful reminders, even for us uh, today. All right, so let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word and, and thank you for these reminders. Uh, would you help us to engage our heart, uh, to revel in, in the amazing extent of your grace and to remember that uh, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, help us to guard our hearts from a going through the motions Christianity. And, and even today that we might repent of ways that we've grown cold and stubborn in our hearts, that, that we're not we're not keeping our hearts tender and actively engaging in things like Bible reading and prayer and meditation and worship. Even as we come to the worship service here in a short time, would you help us that our hearts would truly be engaged and that we might worship you and delight in your ways uh, as the service uh, as the service comes? Uh, Lord, thank you for your word that is powerful. Thank you that it is challenging and it is helpful. Uh, we're grateful for our time together in Isaiah today. In Jesus' name, amen.